0: Welcome to the Season 2 of the India Energy R podcast. The India Energy R podcast explores the most pressing hurdles and promising opportunities of India's energy transition through an in-depth discussion on policies, financial markets, social movements and science. The podcast is hosted by energy transition researcher and author, Dr. Sandeep Pai and Senior Energy and Climate Journalist Shreya Jai. The show is produced by multimedia journalist Tejas Dayananda Sagar.
1: India's energy transition stands at the crossroads of meeting the nation's rising energy demand and pressure at the global front to reduce emissions. Having now committed to a low-carbon development plan and a net-zero target year, all eyes are on India to declare the expiry date of coal. To get a ringside understanding of this complex issue, we invited Dr. Anil Jain. He has held senior positions at key ministries of Petroleum, Environment, Niti Aayog and the erstwhile planning commission. He recently retired as the secretary, Ministry of Coal, where he initiated a division and dialogue on just transition in the country's coal sector. Jain has also authored two books on India's natural gas sector and holds a PhD on the same. He has served as a bureaucrat for three decades.
2: Hello, Mr. Jain. Thank you so much for joining us today at India Energy R. We are absolutely delighted and I must say honored to have you here. You have been one of the most assertive voices in the Indian energy space and you have covered gamut of issues in your career as a bureaucrat. You've served at various positions, but I must say that your association with oil and gas and coal has been the most promising for, say, country's energy future. So thank you again for joining us here today. Thank you. Before we jump into this very important and pertinent topic on energy transition, Mr. Jen, we wanted to understand your journey. You have been a career bureaucrat. You have held several senior positions in key ministries such as oil and gas, coal. You have been involved so for so long in Niti Aayog as well, where you were responsible for many key initiatives which have paved way for several reports and several studies in the energy sector can you tell us a little bit about yourself where are you from what did you study and how did you end up being here in the indian governance and indian bureaucratic system
3: as you are aware i superannuated from the indian administrative service on october 31 just about a fortnight back and uh, we engaged you know, with all uh, you know stakeholders in the indian energy sector particularly so in my last assignment which I served for over three years as secretary in the Ministry of Coal. Reflecting back on my long journey of thirty-six plus years, so I joined the government in 1986. This was my first job, and uh, after the initial years in the state of Madhya Pradesh, where I was to which I was allocated, serving as district magistrates and various assignments in the state headquarters. I landed up in Delhi in 2003. So last 19 years, you know, IS officers in India serve both the state and the center. So I chose to come to Delhi in 2003. Between 2008 and 2012, I returned to my parent, Qatar. But uh, instead of going and serving again at Bhopal, I chose to be the resident commissioner. And alongside... I was lucky to take on the assignment of visiting senior research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. And uh, I was with them on this kind of attachment for six, seven years. And I'll come to what I did at that point of time. After 2012, I reverted to government of India. And uh, instead of taking on what a normal civil servant does, to go to a ministry and become a joint secretary because I was of that seniority, I preferred to go to the planning commission where the energy desk was available so i joined them as an advisor energy and uh, in fact 2015 first jan niti Ayo came into being so i continued to serve the energy sector and i got my promotion there so i was there for five years initially I was handling the oil and gas and renewable portfolios for two years. And thereafter, I handled the entire energy domain, including nuclear energy, hydro, and power, coal. So initially, well, 2003, I must mention, when I came to Delhi, I was uh, deputed to the Petroleum Ministry. So 2003 to 2008, it was oil and gas, 8 to 12 on a, a diplomatic kind of an assignment in Delhi. But uh, that's the time I joined the OIES. And I also wrote my first book, Natural Gas in India, Liberalization and Policy. So more on that later. And 2012 to 17, in the Niti Aayog and Planning Commission, handling the energy portfolio, 2017 to 2019, as additional secretary and special secretary to the government of India, I was in the Ministry of Environment and Forest, where I particularly handled the Montreal Protocol. I did the, you know, wetlands and... Biodiversity. I was also the chairman of National Biodiversity Authority for a an year, and I also handled the hazardous substances division, which handles all the wastes. So I was doing the plastic waste. In fact, I got the opportunity to raise the concern on single-use plastic, and I may say that uh, I was one of the principal actors who got the Prime Minister to declare in 2019 World Environment Day that India will eliminate single-use plastic by 2022 and also the impact assessments, environment impact assessments, EC, grant of ECs, etc. So I did that from 2017 to 2019, and 2019 to 2022. Again, uh, very fulfilling to me, and I do hope I was able to contribute something to the coal sector. It's perhaps the longest tenure anybody has had in the last 27 years. So this is my career span. And uh, I'm lucky that government of India utilized me largely in the energy and environment space for the last 19 years, something which I don't think any bureaucrat in India has had the honor or uh, privilege of doing so. I have
4: a quick follow-up, sir. When you were working with the Oxford or attached to the Oxford studies, like what were some of the key issues that you were looking at more from an academic lens And then how much of those issues that you looked at from an academic or policy lens were you able to apply when you were serving later in Nithya Yoga or in the Coal Ministry?
3: This was a visiting senior research position. And uh, I was, of course, in Delhi and did go to Oxford in between. You know, when I was attached with the Oxford Student Energy Studies in 2010, they had a very robust, they continue to have it, a very robust gas program, as they call it. So gas was being hailed at that point of time, I think in 2010, 12 or so, I don't remember, that even the IEA came up with a special report and they call it the golden age of gas is, is what they had hailed it as because it was following up on the success in the United States of uh, production of shale gas. So the the sidetracking horizontal wells, and um, hydrofracturing. So uh, there was a boost to gas production in the world. More gas was being discovered than oil was. So as a part of that gas program of OIEs, some researchers before me from India had researched there and published that India was now swimming on uh, gas, and uh, soon there will be a huge gas-led economy in the country. Because India has always had, you know, deep aspirations to enhance the share of gas. Because since the early 90s, in fact, the early 80s, the share of gas in the global energy mix has been nearly a quarter of the whole uh, kitty. Whereas in India, it was hovering around 6%, 8%, it went up to 9 or 10 So everybody felt that India will also go the global way. And there were these spate of discoveries in 2002 I think Reliance had this big discovery on the East Coast. And then there were a number of other discoveries or shows, as you might call them, all across the Bay of Bengal, including if you take this arc starting from the Andaman, and there have been gas shows off the coast of Myanmar and Bangladesh, and then you come to the Indian side and keep going down all the way to Fox Strait. So the dominant feeling in uh, Oxford uh, Institute of Energy Studies was that big doses of gas are likely to be produced in India. But when I joined the OIES in 2008, in fact, not 2010, I just served a five year tenure as head of the exploration division. So, this entire subsequent development of the initial one of the D6 discoveries, KGD6, had taken place in my tenure, including Rawa and Cairn discoveries in Rajasthan, which are not really a gas discovery but oil discoveries. So, what I had found in my tenure was that there was a lack of understanding in the government. Of the contractual provisions that had been promised to the contractors. Or let us say there was a hiatus between the understanding between the two sides. So principally on price and cost recovery. So when I dealt with this setup, there was a reluctance in the Indian government and the users of gas who were principally power and fertilizer. The CDD system was not well developed at that time that they will not be able to give market prices for the gas which will come from these private producers. So there were these dilemmas. Will ONGC continue to sell subsidized gas while the private guys will sell at market price? Will there be a fracture between the two? Will the private guys also not be allowed market price? These were the questions which were looming large. Second question which was looming large was, will government have any right to prescribe? Where would the gas go to? So there were questions relating to the gas utilization policy. Now, if you were to combine these two questions, what is the price that the producer will get and which consuming sector will get priority in gas consumption, then it becomes a very heady cocktail. Because if you're going to prioritize power, then power is subsidized, then there will be a back pressure on the upstream producers that, hey, since we sell power at controlled and subsidized prices, we cannot allow you market prices. For urea, again, government has not raised the price of urea in a decade plus or so, and uh, union government subsidizes it. So if you give them market prices, in effect, there is a net-net transfer from the national exchequer to the private producers. So these are two principal questions. There were many other questions. Another one being that how should the gas pipeline be developed? Gale wanted to develop on its own criteria, whereas uh, the private gas producers wanted to connect the gas With the most paying Western markets. So, gas is something which will travel, you know, as they say, pipelines are a national monopoly. So, wherever the pipeline goes, gas will have to go there. So, there were many dilemmas. I restrict myself to these two, the first ones. So, when I did this research at OIS, which led to my first book, I found that while there was a total hands off market approach, but then that was not the complete story. You might have the West tell you know, developing countries that you need to migrate to market pricing, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But then, as we have seen even in recent times, all the old contracts are torn away by either sides, should there be a disruption in the market. There's no real sanctity about it. And uh, you need to keep the long term interest of the consumers and long term interest of the producers. So when I spoke to them about how, you know, gas prices are uh, need to be calibrated, keeping in mind the poverty and and the agriculture privacy in India yeah. and the slums and the poor, etc and uh, Indian market is still underserved so you still need to connect home, you still need to get fertilizer also across to all the farmers. So if you keep the entry bar very high, surprisingly there was a there was a resonance with some of the researchers. you see, why yes I rate very very high on their general approach to energy issues across the world. But then there was also some learnings that, you know, if you keep the market fractured between ONGC and private, then there will always be an understanding that if you wish to contain the end consumer price, then market price being given to the private producer perhaps may keep going up. So which will then require that the ONGC should keep getting lesser and lesser if you want to keep it at that bar or if you want to raise it marginally, but a private guy raises it much higher, then at least you will not allow the ONGCs or the world to get any market prices. So in a way, that learning has, I mean, not that I, I was in planning commission from 2012 to 2017. So in a way, your question is very relevant, that I was able to factor those learnings into the advice that we used to give to the various ministries on the cabinet note that used to come from there. So I'm happy to say that uh, ONGC has also now been allowed much higher prices than what they were getting at that point of time. And there is a move. Now, of course, there's a big move. Uh, you know, they have allowed, I think, $9 a million BTU to, to the Reliance BP Gas because the prices have now been aligned with some weightages to the international gas markets. And there's a formula. This was an inconceivable eight years back, six years back. So that was one principle learning. And the second learning which uh, which I had was that instead of, uh, you know, saying that India is soon going to be flooded with gas, you need to be careful because, you know, private sector runs away if they're not allowed, you know, operational freedom. So I brought in a little bit of caution into the entire thing, which I might say is coming out to be true. I don't want to be critical of, of the way things are, but yes, there were developments In the case of D6, when the cost recovery came to be challenged, I don't know if you people have followed that. So there were charges of gold plating and there was court litigation and there was investigations. So that kind of cast a a deep shadow on the regime in the Petroleum Ministry. So just to allude to one of those aspects, that the country, since the launch of NELP in 1998, was following a cost recovery mechanism in which the producer was told that whatever you invest in exploring and producing the gas, you can take it away when the gas production comes, or for that matter, oil production comes. And the balance will be split between the government and the private party on a predetermined ratio. So that led to some suspicion in the government that people try to gold plate and take away most of it and leave a pittance to be shared. So that led to the government jettisoning that approach. And now there is a flat revenue share approach. I personally don't agree with that approach. And I was part of a committee which the Petroleum Ministry had formed, popularly known as the Kelkar Committee. It was formed in 2013, and uh, they gave a very comprehensive report and recommended that don't jettison the cost recovery approach because Indian sedimentary basins are not as prospective as, you know, those in maybe Gulf of Mexico or the Arab Saudi Arabias of the world or North Sea. But that was not accepted. And I think that is a principal reason.
2: The kind of changes that you talked uh, about that happened in the gas market, do you think in a way it also paved way for, say, a thought process that PSU should also be profit-making? Do you think so?
3: Yeah, that is half true. The reason being that uh, if PSUs earn huge profits, then also the government gets the lion's share in terms of dividends and uh, share prices go up and they often offload some of those shares. So I don't think the idea behind allowing higher prices to ONGC is basically to government to garner more resources. I think it is more to help ONGC spend more money on on expanding its footprints in India and abroad. Because if profit-making was the motive, then Coal India would have been allowed to raise the price of coal to the power sector in the last four years. So if Coal India's profits this year are going to be a tad higher than the previous years, it is only because the small portion of coal which they sell to the open market through auction is yielding very good prices. So I think it's more to do with aligning the gas markets to a common uh, market phenomena. It's a separate topic which we can discuss later when you split the market into two parts, you know, for government to say that in the CGDs, the transport sector, the CNG, and the domestic cooking, PNG, will get administered price gas. And rest of the CGD component, the commercial, industrial, and the other parts will probably get market price gas. In a way, inhibits the growth of that market now. This is the topic of a wider import. Maybe we can discuss it later.
2: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, good that we're discussing fossil fuels. Ironic in the week that COP is happening at Egypt, where there's so much pressure on, I must say, India and other developing nations, uh, alike developing nations as well, but specifically to India, there's so much pressure to reduce the dependence on fossil fuels and especially coal. In light of that, how realistic do you think this pressure is, this target should be for a country like India in short, medium and long term?
3: now when you split the perspective into short medium and long term the answer is pretty obvious in the long term coal has to go there is no two doubts about it for a tropical country like india where you get 300 cloud-free sunny days and being peninsular in nature you know the winds blowing across seasons and the wind energy potential being high there is no doubt that in the long term Uh, You know, as technology develops, storage costs fall down, renewable will be all over. Now, it's a matter of great detail that renewable at the right now, we talk only of renewable power. So in the case of India, the final energy which is consumed, only 17% of it comprises electricity. So when you are talking of renewable and coal being phased out, actually people don't realize that they're only addressing the 17% of the spectrum. So I assume that with growing electrification, maybe of cooking, of some of the industrial processes, and of mobility, this 17, the global being 26, will gradually move from 17 to maybe 2022 in the next 7 to 8 years. So in the long term, as I have said. Now, in the short term, if you say 10 years, i don't think it is possible to reduce the dominance of coal in the country anybody who says that uh, you know i would go strong, far enough to say does not understand the energy domain you know there are very quick numbers that india's per capita electricity consumption as we all know you see with a grid of the size of 1400 billion units if you garnered maybe some captives and others maybe it is 1500 billion units and a few days back we saw india's population has already crossed 1.4 billion so india's per capita electricity consumption is not even eleven hundred, and global average is about three thousand. US is eleven thousand, and rest of it. So with such low per capita electricity numbers, and electrification only having reached the rural areas in the last few years, and that also some of you who know the electricity sector very well, you know this the uh, India Alokadiya Gramin Jyoti Yojana, and prior to that the RGGVY those have only provided for infrastructure to deliver not even one kilowatt hour consumption to the rural areas. So they've kind of done some calculation that one mobile charge, four maybe LED lights of seven bots each, one fan, maybe something. So where is is the animal spirits being unleashed in the electricity demand sector? Now that will happen gradually. And when that happens, India's per capita electricity consumption may not reach You know, maybe I might say that we are growing our system in a very efficient manner. We may not even reach 3,000, but we may at least reach 2,000 and satisfy our energy urges. At that number, and the population projection going to 1.7 billion or so, if I'm correct. So we are talking of a grid size of how much, maybe 33,000 BU plus. And India's aspiration to grow, if India grows at 8 to 9%, which should not be difficult, because China grew at that percent consistently for 10 years. And the elasticity of electricity demand being, you know, maybe 0.6 or uh, around thereabouts. And since India has to electrify, it should definitely be more than 0.6. And if India grows at maybe 9%, so you're looking at something like 5.5% increase in the grid size every year. So even if it is, you know, 1500 BU grid at the moment, And 5%. So, means uh, at least 75 to 80 BU of demand going up every year. At the moment, the growth in renewables is not more than 10 to 12,000. Because, with the present mix of solar, wind, small hydro, biomass, the generation, the CUFs coming from renewables, do not give you more than 2 million units of power from every megawatt that we add. So, if you are adding uh, 12,000, even, which I don't think we're adding, You're looking at 24 BU of additionality against what we just discussed, about 75 plus. So how can anybody just, you know, talk through his hat? So if these are Westerners, then maybe they want to deny India an opportunity to grow. And if there are any Indian researchers who understand the Indian energy domain well, I don't want to say much, they need to really do some, you know, deep thinking. You know, India has so much potential. We are one of the world largest deposit holders of bauxite, but our aluminum production, uh, you know, is so low that we import some varieties of aluminum. We need to do value addition. We are exporting alumina. Nani's have announced that they are going to foray into aluminum. Coal India wishes to set up an aluminum plant. Steel India is producing about 160 or so. It It aspires to produce 300 million tons by 2030. So all these things, and I spoke of the rural areas getting connected. We need to grow, and energy is, is uh, the lifeblood, as we all often very proudly write in our essays. So, TKR, okay, then you need to give that blood to the economy. Na? Use coal responsibly, bring in efficient plants, mine responsibility with responsibility, go underground mining. Those things, mine pollution, mining pollution, transportation pollution, generation pollution, are the things to talk about. Not that you cut down your uh, uh, you know, energy supply. So in the short term, my take is that uh, with 72% of electricity mix coming from coal, even if we grow the non-coal-based power at a phenomenal rate, in 10 years' time, I don't see it coming down below 65, 66. And in the medium term, then the alignment will take place. It will probably fall at a faster rate. So, maybe by 2055 or so, 2055, and there's no point hazarding guesses because these are things which need to be worked on models and on paper and pens and Excel sheets, you might see coal diminishing.
2: If I can quickly ask, uh, you know, this issue of how much fossil fuel one should have and how much renewable is obviously not just numbers, this much gigawatt, this much billion units and obviously not black and white. There are so many facets in that but in middle of this india has submitted a low carbon development long-term development strategy at cop uh, details would still emerge and i'm not sure how much of you have gone through but you must have been involved definitely uh, so overall it talks about an optimal mix of energy and decarbonization of industries and everything so in that scenario if i ask you what kind of energy planning is needed to achieve that goal it's pretty long term But from, say, if today was day zero, what kind of planning is needed in that
3: case? You know, as uh, I had once heard Dr. Stephen Chu say when he was the Energy Secretary of the US and he was visiting India, that it is much cheaper to develop low carbon and an efficient energy system than to retrofit deep carbon and an inefficient energy system. So he was discussing this you know, in, uh, when we were talking about the U.S. Lexity Grids and the Indian Lexity Grid. You see, in the in the U.S., the grid has traditionally been, again, just like anywhere else in the world, coal-supported. And there is a very high level of, uh, you know, opening of the markets, of the Lexity markets in the U.S. So there's a different generator, there's a different transmitter, there's a different distributor. So he was comparing it with the Indian situation and saying that, you know, India's electricity grid is going to grow 2x or 3x. And you can straight away, when you are building the new grid, have solar generators come up in a big way. So the transmission system is geared, you know, you do know that uh, whatever is the CUF of the upstream, same as the CUF of the transmission system. If the solar plant is working at a 20% annual capacity utilization factor, even the transmission system connected to it will have the same uh, kind of efficiency. So there'll be different costing norms for it. A transmission system which is wheeling away power from a thermal power plant will have an uh, an efficiency of maybe 70% or 65%, whatever is the efficiency, PLF of that plant. So when you develop a transmission system for a renewable source, then it is designed for that kind of costing. And similarly for the buyers, so consumers, if they are getting a renewable system-based power, then their balancing and uh, uh, you know variability is also then catered for. So what he meant was that India will have an opportunity to develop a system entirely customized for that situation, whereas in the U.S. they are having to retrofit it with all kinds of difficulties. And he was saying that you know the distributor wants the cheapest power. So if ever there is an attempt by his supplier of power to go renewable or to bring in a renewable mix, which will have slightly some price implications. So he will jump away from him and go to somebody who will still give him a fossil-based one. So what he said was that uh, India has this opportunity to develop a cleaner system, and efficient system. So to that extent, the India's long-term low-carbon development strategy makes sense. As I mentioned initially, that uh, my modeling in the Niti Aayog that India Energy Security Scenarios 2047, we never projected that India's energy system in 2047 will have the same energy and the carbon footprints as the West has. Because we felt that, you know, we will not have 45 watt incandescent lamps. We have already moved on to 7 watt LED lamps. We will not have 50 watt or 45 watt fans. We will have a maybe a 25 to 30 watt fan. And our buildings uh, will not be retrofitted To make them uh, compliant to five star, we will already have ECBC because there was that another number that in 2012, 2013, when we made that model. The civil structure in existence in the country, the buildings and the commercial buildings, they were just one third of what would be in existence in 2030, 2035. So we would build the new buildings energy efficient and they will have much lesser, what you call them, EPIs as compared to the older buildings. Uh, the India's uh, low carbon development strategy, which I browsed through, we did. We were consulted. Looks upon the demand sectors. It looks upon all the four prominent demand sectors like agriculture, uh, you know, buildings, transport, and industry, and talks of how uh, they will grow on efficient and low carbon. And as regards the supply is concerned, we have already discussed. That uh, the electrification part can easily be made low carbon because we have a huge potential of solar and wind. But the challenge which will remain is what you people call hard to abate sectors. So the industrialization technologies still need to be. And what happens to storage costs globally, which will be shared with India? What will happen to, uh, you know, hydrogen economies? So those are some something which you have to still watch out. And these uh, strategies presented at international fora are not cast in stone. I'm sure wherever technology is still evolving, the, the cost keeps coming, cost curve keeps coming down. And whatever India has projected, probably it will do much better than what it has been shown there.
4: Sir, this is great. This leads to my next question. And something that you touched upon is, you know, as, and what Shea was mentioning that, so much pressure and, you know, sometimes unjustified pressure on India to declare something, do something about coal or declare something about coal. Now, I don't know if you're following these just energy transition partnerships. Last year was with South Africa or uh, this year with Indonesia. Now, I think there's increasing sort of pressure on like India also or or G7 wants to do such a partnership with India and kind of contribute a small amount, some 10, 15 billion dollars to help India wean off coal and help workers and and so on. So taking that as an example and various delegations, I'm sure that you have met, perhaps from West have kind of talked about how India can reduce reliance. So how did you deal with all that, you know, if I can call pressure slash, you know, conversations when it comes to folks coming from across the Atlantic and Kind of talking about these issues. So this is more of a kind of a political and how did you manage that keeping India's position firm but at the same time kind of dealing with those international pressures?
3: Firstly, it is not so much from across the Atlantic. It is on this side of the Atlantic. So there's not much coming from the US and Canada. There was a lot of pressure coming from uh, actually European continent. At the outset, let me tell you that still The government of India as a whole, which includes the Prime Minister's office, the power ministry, the the finance ministry, and us, and ETIO, and all of us, still, they haven't come out, and Minister External Affairs, not to forget them, have still not come out with a a very clear stated roadmap ahead on how to engage on JETP. So at the moment, the whatever I tell you will be from the coal ministry's perspective while I was there and some a little little bits which I was able to understand from the other quarters. So what has happened is that uh, after Glasgow, at least in our thinking in the coal ministry, a major uh, you know, development took place. You see, it was for the first time that India committed to a net zero timeline. As long as India had not committed to a net zero timeline, there could not be any issue of abating coal. You know, it was business as usual. But when India says that 2070, which means that a target date has been set. Now, whether you start reducing today or you drastically shut down everything in 2069, you know, is the larger question, which will probably be spelt out by the MOFCC in these documents and you know, MRVs and reporting, which they probably have to do as a part of the Paris uh, and the Glasgow and whatever framework of the UN UN system. But we in the coal ministry did realize that even if we don't have to shut down our coal mines, we need to start talking about it. So we got the license to talk about it, number one. Number two, in order that the coal mines are, uh, you know, closed down or rehabilitated, in a scientific manner, in a manner in which the, the nature can again conquer, reconquer back that land. and God willing life on earth continues for a millennia or more, several millennia for that matter, things should be back to normal. we We owe it, you know uh, back. And I had spent my two years in environment ministry, and theoretical base of environment clearance was that you know minimal damage to the environment, and the site restoration. Once uh, you have done your job and you move away, And I was very conscious of the fact that you know in power plants, uh, since I was handling the power sector as well in the environment ministry, they were sitting on you know let us say millions of tons of uh, of ash, uh, bottom ash. I used to fear that once you know renewable takes over and these plants shut down, and what will happen to that all that ash? You know maybe when the monsoon comes, cumber- will Flow into the lands of the tribals all around. And those land, the heavy metals in it and other stuff, and those land will be rendered waste for posterity. Second, as I mentioned, was that we did feel that we need to bring in the best practices to rehabilitate and restore the mines. And there is no harm in learning from the others. Let's say World Bank and US. So these are these international partnerships. We teach them a few things. They teach us a couple of things. So that led to an opening of our approach towards them. And the third development which took place was that uh, World Bank suddenly at a very opportune moment, probably since South Africa agreed to take something, you know, at Glasgow. So they started looking at the others. And this JETP was formed. And Germany was given the responsibility for India. So World Bank came forward, GIZ came forward. So they just happened to walk in and approach the ministry that, hey, can we guys help you in any way in your just energy transition framework? So we huddled together in the ministry. We also spoke to the finance ministry. And there was a consensus that this money comes basically in the shape of know-how, in the, in the shape of uh, you know, the pilots, hand holding, sharing of international experiences, and does not in any way prescribe that you shut down your coal mines. If the money comes to restore our old, abandoned, closed coal mines, then there's no harm. And for that matter, since India has also been taking the stand that of the CBDR and rest of it, that if India wishes to go out and tell the international community that, look, you guys created this mess and you need to clean it. And this is the bill. So if you have to put forward the bill, instead of that, you know, one amorphous number of $100 billion per year, which has not happened, and I don't know whether it is adequate or inadequate, you must have some cogent calculations behind it. So we spoke to the World Bank guys and told them that, look, if you want to work on these principles, as I just mentioned, and help us to develop a couple of pilots, And we see the dimension of the JET and what will be the bill, what is the technical know-how which we have and you guys can bring, the gap between, and rest of which, you know, take the trade unions along, take the state governments along. And alongside, also look at the socioeconomic parameters. Because so far, the mining laws in India and the environment laws in India do not impose any socioeconomic burden on the polluter. So we said that, you know, the mines which are lying shut are all of the public sector domain. So it will be very difficult to coal India to walk out of the schools and the hospitals and the skill center that it is running. So this was my thinking that uh, coal India is going to be different from a private miner. And it will be politically also explosive because, you know, if coal India shuts its operations, then Government of India will stand to blame that you shut down the hospital also. So I said, let's look at that also. So this was something which World Bank readily agreed. And the project which is under development, when I just when I left the ministry to see under development, that they were wanting to bring us about a billion to one and a half billion dollars of assistance to drive some pilots on uh, mine closure frameworks with this added dimension of socioeconomic. Now that is something which which I started in the Ministry of Coal. And this $1 or $1.5 soft loan is yet to be approved. It's yet to go through the motions. Now, coming to the other ministries, I think MBA to me seemed to be fine because I understand that there was some high level acceptance in public documents. They may be there at the you know, G7 meeting of India supportive of the uh, Just Energy Transition Partnerships. Now, what shape that? Because what the sense I get is that there is still hesitancy on the on the overall framework of the government of India. That what is in the offing with JTP? Is it some kind of a proxy move to force India to shut down coal mines? Is it a move to just throw a couple of billion dollars? You also use the word ten to fifteen billion. Ten to fifteen me kya hota Ten to fifteen is uh, you know uh, peanuts. So uh, these are things which. I don't know how the the mutual engagements will progress, whether India will insist on full answers before it openly adopts JTP, or for that matter, whether the West is willing to give the full answers, but what will be the baby steps that is yet to be seen. That's really fascinating.
4: And this is very interesting. I've been saying this. So what happened in South Africa, I'll just take 30 seconds to explain, is that South Africa readily agreed. I mean, South Africa and India context was very different, right? They have this debt ridden SCOM, the power utility, and you know, the country is facing power shortages. So, in the last COP, they readily agreed on this, but India's situation is quite different. And then South Africa made this investment plan one year later, what it needs the money for, but then realized that actually what they're offering is ninety-five, ninety-seven 97 percent in the form of loans and three percent in the form of grants so that partnership is also facing some roadblocks although you know so i was calling it like the just just headline partnership you know when it, when it happened because one year later now they've announced that with india but obviously india's priorities will be different i mean just transitions interpretation itself is so different across geography so india could ask money for renewables. It it may have nothing to do with coal. Anyway, but yeah, that's interesting to hear that. So one follow-up on this just transition, and I know Shreya has burning questions as well, but so where do you think this work going from? Because this was so much, and I know this, your own personal initiative and push. Uh, I'm not sure if like after you, do you think that this initiative will get same push Because anyway, there is suspicion about this work. Like, what does it mean for India? So I'm not sure, like, how do you see this going forward? However, one thing I would say is that because of your initiative, some positive things have already happened. Government of Jharkhand has created a task force on just transition. You know, Coal India has all these committees on just transition now. So already a lot of institutionalization has slowly started, but... If it doesn't continue, there is always a fear of this dying down. So I'm just curious, what, what would be your speculation of how this would go in the future?
3: I'm glad you're calling it a speculative question. <laughs> well, to my mind, you know, as they say, that there's nothing stopping an idea whose time has come. And as I mentioned to you that uh, I'm not categorically stating, but I think at the G7 uh, communique, which came out of Germany, when the Prime Minister went, or, there was some, uh, you know, acknowledgement by of India of endorsing. I'm not sure of what exactly the wordings are. But uh, I think the idea has come and it will be very difficult for India to back out that we will not even access your know-how. India may not naturally go the South African way, which probably as you, I didn't know you rightly pointed out, even South Africans... Might just withdraw. So, what will happen to the funding aspect? I'm not sure. Neither is that on the table. But uh, sharing of knowledge is something which probably is in India's interest, and uh, that perhaps India may not be able to say that we don't even want that. Thirdly, since Jharkhand has now awoken and formed that committee, it is likely that this may have you know a carpet bombing kind of a Odisha also may come forward and. So if the states get ready to talk about just transition, Government of India will welcome it to my mind. Another part of this entire, you know, dynamics is that prior to 2009, there was no mine closure framework of any uh, great import. So one thing which I am very happy I was able to do before I limited office, I approved the guidelines mandating the coal companies to implement comprehensive mine closure framework even on pre-2009 mine. And the second thing which I did was that I empowered them to pass on a levy for that cost into the coal price which they sell in the country. So these two developments really is, to my mind, should, you know, empower Coal India to take it up. And if these states, if not today, tomorrow, get conscious and demand of Coal India, Coal India will not be able to say that the government has not, you know, accorded any approval. And finally, my take is that since India itself has been going and talking at these fora, that you created the mess and you need to clear it up. If those guys come forward and say, we want to help you clear it, how will India be able to say that, no, if you come with one trillion only, will I accept? If you come with a couple of billion, I will not take. this will go forward.
2: One thing I just wanted to, you know, while we are on the topic of just transition, uh, the current discussion in its form seems to focus on mine closure and, uh, you know, rehabilitating the land and everything. But human resource is a huge part of this particular initiative. And there doesn't seem to be much focus either from the government end or from the company, which in this case is Coal Mm -hmm. India and happens to manage the biggest workforce that is there in the mining sector. Do you think uh, a dialogue would begin on this soon now that states are also coming on board and where do you think the solution lies to this? It's a sector that covers several states, several stakeholders and in human resource is the key to this just transition.
3: No, but as I just mentioned, uh, that uh, the World Bank project which we were pursuing was also looking at the manpower and the people who were... Dependent. And if you remember the report which was done by I4S, they said that the people who are dependent on the coal economy, only 20% of them are formally engaged and 80% are informally engaged on it. So, those guys may not directly benefit from, you know, any VRS schemes or any contractual payments. So, these, they have to be also catered for. So, that is why I have built it into the technical TOR of the World Bank Assignment. And I also elaborated that since it is a public sector, uh, government cannot willy-nilly really, really run away. But uh, Shreya, uh, this uh, issue must also be deliberated in the larger uh, mining context. Today, is there any framework in the country wherein if a steel industry shuts down, if a cement plant depletes limestone and shuts down, chromite mines shut down, I mean, there are labor laws which provide for severance packages and pays, etc., etc. But otherwise, all the panwala there, the transporter community, the local Karyana, there's no such framework. So why single out coal for this kind of a treatment? This is where the dynamics comes in. That if India were to ever acknowledge that we would have gone on with business as usual, but we are shutting it down because the West is telling us to then there will be a question from the states that look, this is under international pressure or this is under the Government of India's guidelines. So the just energy transition is actually a lot to do with the cerebral space as much as it is to do with the on-ground activity.
4: Great, sir. This has been a great section. I think let's move on to the last set of like kind of big picture questions. One thing I have always wondered is You know, different ministries in India have different mandates, right? Environment ministries, like monitor the mandate, coal ministries to produce coal, power ministries, power. Like how much do these ministries talk to each other? Is there integrated planning in the country in terms of like thinking about, you know, a comprehensive energy policy in the country? Like how how much is the need for integrated planning if it doesn't exist?
3: You know, this calls for a full session with me <laughs> because you might recall I wrote the draft national energy policy. So, you know, there is a desperate need to have a coordinating mechanism. You see, to, just to prescribe that there should be a common energy ministry would be uh, to, not to acknowledge in a governance scenario. So I would, you know, lob for something lower than that and call it a coordinating mechanism. Now, whether that coordination should be done by the Prime Minister's office, where there used to be an energy coordination committee headed by the Prime Minister, or it should be done by the Niti Io. Unfortunately, Niti Io, which was set up, as I mentioned, on Jan 1, 2015, when Dr. Pangaria was there and, and I was heading the energy division. We tried to do this draft national energy policy, but it could not go through. So the last coordinating effort was in the Times of Planning Commission, which was in 2008, when they did the Integrated Energy Policy Report. And I think it took the shape of a policy in 2009 or so. So since 2009, in the last 13 years, India has, in a way, not updated its uh, Integrated Energy Policy. Not to say that there is no policy. Different ministries, you know, solar policy and, uh, you know, petroleum pricing policy power sector policies keep coming out. But yes, the value which an integrated policy offers is well-recognized, but that is lacking in the country. It is the need of the hour. And I, who myself authored the national energy policy, you know, cannot deny that it was useful. But uh, to bring all the energy ministries to the same platform, you know, even presently, when there's a common minister between power and renewables, it becomes very difficult for them to coordinate their competing aims. Because this guy is doing coal-based power and that guy is doing renewable power. So how to support one and how to make the other go back? So this is a subject of abiding interest and uh, needs to be discussed in a fair amount of detail.
2: And then the other challenge is states, you know, they might or might not embrace the idea of what the center is planning in terms of an energy transition in the country. Do you think that they would also be on board? I'm sure it would be challenging, but is there a way to get you know, states also together on this particular subject or would it be a market-driven need that will drive them?
3: You see, Shaya, market-driven will not work in the case of coal transition. It's just energy transition, when you say then you bring, you bring in renewables and so many other things. If you're talking of coal transition, coal transition may market phenomena will not work. The reason being that the price of coal sold so far in the country did not have an element of mine closure frameworks. So that money has not been provided for. So today, if you tell Coal India that this is all the dirt that you created, please clean it. There is the money. Forward going market phenomena can work. You see, even today, whatever money is being garnered from the coal sector, be it NMET or be it uh, Mineral Development Fund, et cetera, et cetera. So you talk to people that please allow this to be used for mine closure framework. People come biting at you because the vested interest and which is normal in a polity. Mine Development Fund is meant for the Gram panchayas and for them to do what they want to do to the hospitals or they want to do a little bit of a paymenting, school building, buying furniture. They will not let you use that for uh, putting the... Earth back into the mines and scientifically closing, or for that matter, compensating the informal workforce. You see, when this question was raised to me, that what is your outlook on the just energy transition partnerships? Either you imbibe from what the rural region of Germany did, or what you know Appalachian region of US did, or you do on your own. And also mentioned to you that uh, in the case of pre two thousand nine. When I issued the guidelines, I also gave them a mechanism to garner resources for it. Because you just give guidelines and don't uh, show where the money is going to come from. So earlier they do the market frameworks, the better it is. Otherwise, it will become more and more difficult. The four hundred rupees which which coal sector gives per ton for GST compensation, which was meant to be withdrawn, I think, in twenty twenty three or so, government has extended that also. So once a particular funding is the uh, tied to a particular end use, is very difficult to snap that. Diversion is out of possible, impossible. Even snapping that or reducing or curtailing, they'll keep increasing. 600. Well, sir,
4: thank you so much. This has been a really remarkable conversation. I have one final, very short question. Sir, so what are your plans now? After having such a prolific career, the energy sector in India is looking at you and Asking what is what is
3: your next plan?
2: Is there a third book on the way?
3: <laughs> no, I have been approached by one publisher to sign up a book on, uh, you know, demystifying climate challenge. Energy uh, interface with climate change for India. Abhi sign nahi But, uh, uh, you know, I have led a very active life and Shreya knows it so well. Uh, 24 by 7. Especially because of the recent, uh, you know, past 14 months since the Russia-Ukraine war and revival of the global economy, gold demand booming, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So after all this, to just hang up my boots and just write a book is not possible for me. I need to slow down gradually. Number two, the imperatives which I see, I did my PhD two years back and uh, my Book based on PhD just released three months back. So having done so much, I went to planning commission of my own volition. You see, the then deputy chairman, Dr. Monte Galwalia, he released my first book. And he thought that, you know, in fact, he told me you're an energy economist, and where are you? Where are you wilding away your time? So I chose to go to planning commission on my own. So I spent those five years not being a regular JS of a ministry, you know, writing these documents which ultimately did not get accepted. So I would like to remain involved in policy advice, in think tank activity in academia. I might teach, I am talking to some universities for part-time teaching assignments, talking to some think tanks on, you know, assisting their young researchers in doing some researches But I'm available to the government for the next one year. You know, in the Indian system, one year uh, is an embargo. I can't go into private sector and things like that. And uh, so I'm available to the government. And uh, if they wish to utilize me in any way, if at the end of the year, they have no use for me, then I will seek where I can contribute anywhere here or there.
2: That's great. Amazing.
4: Thank you so much for your time, sir.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to The India Energy R. Subscribe to this channel to never miss an update. To drop us a feedback, visit our website or write to us at theindiaenergyr@gmail.com. at gmail.com We are on Twitter. You can follow at tieh_podcast underscore podcast and get in touch with the two hosts at Shreya underscore J and at Sandeep with double I.